invite you to take a Bible and turn in the uh, New Testament letter of Philippians. A brief little letter of Philippians. We're looking at chapter 2 for the past few months. Been uh, preaching through this, this book. And this is we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Paul is in prison. We think in Rome, it's been 10 years since he planted, he and others planted the church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. Uh, now he's writing back to them. It's a brief letter, probably one of the most studied letters in the New Testament because it's brief and because it's really not dealing with a contentious subject. Uh, he's very grateful for them. There's a great love between him and these believers. A 10-year-old church, think about that. Uh, many people think as a, of a 10-year-old church as a new church, but it, it really isn't. It, it's very established in its ways after 10 years. And he writes back to them, and we'll just look at verses 12 and following. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. At the end of the uh, service, or at the end of this message leading up to the Lord's table, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. And just a reminder to you, this is, there, we believe there are two sacraments in the church. There's baptism, we witnessed earlier, and then there's the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the sacrament of initiation into the covenant community. The Lord's Supper is the sacrament of rededication. It's like an anniversary meal. For those of you here that are married, or maybe it's a, a, and you celebrate anniversaries of, of the, the date of, of your wedding, and it's a time, in a sense, to renew yourself to those vows and to, to think back what God has done over the years, or maybe any kind of anniversary, the anniversary of a, a employment or anniversary since maybe something uh, hard happened. But anniversaries are, are important, and, and it's a positive thing to think back. Well, when we come to the Lord's table, it is an anniversary celebration, you might say. We're remembering what Christ did. We're remembering how we came to faith in Christ, and we are recalling that he said we're to do this until he comes again, that this points to the future of Christ's return. Now, today we live in a, a kind of a confusing time in the church, and, and I know this especially from ministering to college students, but many Christians are using baptism as a form of rededication. People that have been, maybe some of you, that have been baptized three, four, five, six times. And each time you said, well, I, I think I was a Christian before, but I really wasn't. Now I really am. No, it really is only one time is needed. That's the sacrament of initiation. I married my wife, and there's a symbol of that, and that's this wedding ring. 
but it's a day after day commitment and a rededication, but we don't get remarried at those times. So this is the sacrament of rededication. Now, that's for the Christians that are here. If you, by some chance, and only you would know, if you're not a Christian, if you do not believe, or maybe you don't, maybe you believe intellectually in Christ, but you've not embraced him as your own personal savior, as your redeemer, I would ask you, why not? And I think in, in many cases, we may, in a natural state, say, you know, I, I have a Christian spouse or I have a Christian friend, and I could never live like that. I, uh, I, I have no desire to read the Bible or, or to pray or to do things that Christians do, and I enjoy a lot of things that I don't think would, that God would be pleased with. And I could just, I never could do that. Well, as you are at the moment, you're right, you cannot do that. But what this shows us in the two verses we're going to look at for the moments we have is that it's God's empowerment that enables a person to do that when they come to faith in Christ. So let's look at these this morning. So if you've not been here, we've gone in depth in chapter one and the first part of chapter two. And I will tell you that the first part of chapter two tells about the humiliation of Christ, how he became a man, not just a man, but a servant. And then he died, not just any death, but the death on a cross. And that God now has exalted him with his resurrection and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the place of honor. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, based on that, that's why the word therefore in verse 12 because of that, because Christ has been humbled and exalted and every knee will bow, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more my absence. Therefore, because Jesus has humbled himself in light of his example and in light of what God is going to do, we should obey. Now they have obeyed even in his absence. It's easy to obey an authority over us when the authority is looking over our shoulder. It's not difficult to obey traffic laws when there's a state trooper uh, driving next to you on the, on the interstate. Uh, it's, it's easier to obey a teacher in a classroom when the teacher is present rather than being out of the room. We all understand that. Well, Paul was saying he's complimenting their obedience, not just when he was there, but even in his absence. In fact, he says much more in his absence. And you know what that shows us? It shows that they were living quorum Deo before the face of God. They were not doing it for Paul's sake. They were not doing it to please other people. They were seeking to obey God, God himself in the sight of God. Or as one said, they were playing to an audience of one and that was God. It showed their obedience was genuine. We realize that, that some seem to do very well as Christians or seem to be growing as long as there are other stronger Christians around. It's not a secret. It's, it's well known, well documented that, and I hope this isn't the case for those of you that are in junior high school or middle school or high school right now, but the vast majority of kids that grow up in the church, once they graduate high school and go off to college, do not go to church again until two things happen. They're married and they have a child. 
And I'm not making that up. That's, that's well documented. Something is wrong with that picture. And we can say, well, it's the influence. It's the influence of the world. It's the influence of the college campus. Or they just got in the wrong crowd. Uh, it could also be that the obedience, the seeming obedience that was there was strictly because the authority was looking over their shoulder. The parents or the youth pastor or the grandmother, granddad or aunt or whoever it was. And that maybe it wasn't genuine. I'm not saying that only God knows hearts. I don't know exactly what is the case. Uh, but if we are committed to Christ, we will obey him. And we need supportive fellowship, and we need to be wise about the situations we put ourselves in. Yet, we still do it because I'm obeying God. I'm not doing it just because someone is seeing me, or for to be a man pleaser, or, or something like that. So here we come to the most controversial verse in the whole letter. And that is verse, well, verse 12, the latter part that they've obeyed not only in my presence, but more in my absence. Now this phrase, this is a controversial one, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I think of how confusing this would be to a, a non-native English speaker. If you are here today and, and you're just learning English and you read this verse and you think work out because we use that combination of words uh, here's a math problem. I want you to work it out. I'm going to the gym to work out. You tell someone you have a problem and, you know, a, a difficult situation you're going through, and they wisely say, well, just give it time. It will work out. Same words, three distinct meanings. We could give them more than that. And now Paul says, work out your salvation. It does not say work for your salvation. It doesn't say work toward your salvation. It doesn't say work at your salvation. It says work out your salvation. You can only work out salvation that has been put in, already worked in you by God. What this teaches is, let me just summarize it for you. We're gonna take the short way around the barn, okay? Because you are already in Christ, because you have believed, because you are saved, because God has entered your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, because you have his power at work within you, because of these things, now strive to express this salvation in every area of your conduct. Did you get it? Okay, that's the short way around the barn. When you come to faith in Christ, you're not much different than you were moments before. If you had misconceptions about God, you will still have misconceptions about God. If you had problems about things that you could not solve, they'll still be there. You had disobedient behavior patterns. They, they will still be there. There may be a new awareness of them. So you still have the same problems, the same misconceptions, some of the same sins, some of the same doubts, but now something's happened. God has put within you a resource of the Holy Spirit who begins to change you from the inside out. I view it like concentric circles of a bullseye and that God begins to work out in different areas of our life so that it permeates our whole life. But it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why if, if you're not a Christian, you say, I could never live that way, you're right if 
it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. Now we have a new power within us that enables change to come, profound change, change that surprises all of us in our own lives. We're to do this with fear and trembling. We know in the Bible it tells us to fear the Lord, to have a reverence for him, to have an awe for him. Proverbs 37 says, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Psalm 33 says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Ecclesiastes 8, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. There are a whole multitude of verses that talk about fearing God, having a reverential awe of him. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. Here with fear and trembling, he's talking about the sense of having no self-assurance, the sense of not being arrogant, the sense of realizing your own weakness. So we obey him, not trusting in ourselves. We work out our salvation, not thinking, oh, I can do that. I can handle all this, but trusting in him. You must always be conscious that we, you live before the face of God. Let me say, tell you how Sinclair Ferguson summarizes it. The sense of awe of God produces a special quality to our obedience. It gives us direction that we're not people pleasers, but God honoring. It gives our obedience integrity in that our obedience is tested by a more discerning eye than those of our fellow sinners around us. God knows our heart. It is an obedience with humility in which self-protection has given way to devotion of the Lord. So it's a, a fear and trembling of our own human sinfulness and our own human weakness. Hey, I, I saw a, a, a news program on, on television and it was talking about crashes on the highway with cars. You know, and at that time when I saw it, I guess it's still true, the most dangerous highway in the world is in southern Portugal. And even with increased safety measures and cars being safer on the road, crashes actually increased when the cars were rated as safer. There were far less car crashes in February when there was snow and rain than there were in July. Why? Because people were more careful. When there's snow and rain, everyone slowed down, everyone was very careful. But in July, when the, when the uh, conditions seemed optimal, people were not as careful and there were more crashes. Let me give you a hypothetical question. Imagine there are two automobiles outside. One is rated as the safest automobile you can purchase. I think it's a Prius. <laughs> One of our pastors has a Prius, and I give him a hard time about those little wheels. <laughs> so one car is rated as the most safe car you can buy. Uh, the other car is filled with explosives, and even the smallest crash will cause it to disintegrate with you inside. Uh, which of those two are likely to be driven most safe, most safely? The one with the explosives because a driver would be much more intentional and careful. That's the fear and trembling talked about in this verse, that we're to be keenly aware of our own hearts that can deceive us as we battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Well, let me try and wrap this up quickly. The great news, the good news, really comes in verse 13, for it is God who works in you 
to do these things, to will and to work for his good pleasure. He gives us the will to follow him. And then the work is he brings about the change in us by depending on him, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. He gives us a will to be humble. And we can say then like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than all the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So God is at work. He is active. He is always at work. And yet we are very active in our obedience. And he does it according to his good pleasure. I want to, as we approach the Lord's table in a moment, I, I want to take this passage and give you a principle. God delights to delight his people. God delights to delight his people. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, after begging my parents for a couple of years, they provided guitar lessons for me. The summer before uh, the seventh grade, I had two lessons a week and I was just enthralled with it. That's, I, it was, you know, it, it fit. It, it fit me and my interest and loved to practice, couldn't, couldn't get enough of it. So first my dad borrowed a guitar from a neighbor, didn't have any strings on it, it was all beat up. He paid to get the strings put on and he wanted to see if I was gonna be serious about it. So after about a month and he saw I was serious about it, he rented a guitar uh, for me to use. We returned the one to the neighbor and then after, uh, I guess it was a couple of years, finally bought a guitar, it was a used guitar. And I continued to play and, and so forth. And then one day I was at a friend's house a couple of years later and uh, I said, what's that? I saw a guitar case. And he said, well, that's my dad's guitar. And uh, he said, do you want to play it? So we opened it up and I, I picked it up and I played my first Martin guitar. And I said, no, this is a guitar. <laughs> I see if Martin guitar started, the company started in 1833. And there are a lot of great guitar companies, but that one kind of has a legacy behind it. and still makes very good guitars expensive guitars. My father was never extravagant. He grew up in the depression and had two shirts. Family had to be separated during the depression. He was sent with his mom to live in Jacksonville, Florida with a relative so that his dad could continue to work and get by trying to make money. So my dad was always very, very, very frugal. Later became a lawyer and a judge, but you would not know it by the way he lived what I mean financially. <laughs> Fast forward ahead about 20, 20, 20 years, and Barbara and I and our three small children at that time go to my parents' house for Christmas. This ended up being about three years before my dad died. And at Christmas, uh, we're exchanging gifts, and he says, here, I've got one for you, and pulls out a box, and I pull the guitar case out, and it's a Martin guitar. I had no idea he was going to buy this. This was so out of character for him, just the sheer cost of it. My mother was mad. She just said, <laughs> she, she did the whole time just, you know, just kind of had that look. She was a school teacher too, by the way, if you're a school teacher. She just, she wouldn't even say, if she was so mad, she couldn't even say anything. And my dad, my dad didn't say, I got this for you because it's a good investment financially, which an instrument like that can be, and it is now. 
I, I didn't get this for you because you really needed it. I didn't. You know what he said? He said this over and over. I wanted you to have this. I just wanted you to have this, Chip. Now, if an earthly father can do that in a fraction of a way, that's what the heavenly father does. He delights, I won't pick anybody by name, he delights in giving you the will to follow him and to work in you so that you obey him. That brings him pleasure because he knows it brings you pleasure. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that salvation is a free gift. And we're grateful that you don't leave us on our own to obey you afterwards, but you send the Holy Spirit to empower us, to have a heart for you, to desire to obey you. So you, we pray that we would not be passive but active in working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're grateful that you delight to delight in us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.